Yeah, it's good to be back with you guys tonight. We're going to continue in our study on the fear of man. So last week we began a series on what the Bible describes as the fear of man. And uh, I wanted to take you guys through this topic because the fear of man is one of those pervasive issues that everyone's plagued with, but we struggle to see it until it's spelled out uh, in our lives. Uh, and, and to complicate matters even more, if they're not already complicated, the, the world mislabels this fear of man as, as other things, uh, pleasing people, codependency, peer pressure, lack of self-esteem, and we could probably keep the list going, but really, all the, the Bible calls this the fear of man. And when we mislabel it, we miss the fundamental root issue, which is one of worship. And we looked at that in depth last week. And so I wanted to start in on this series to help us unpack really what the Bible has to say about this issue, what it is, how to fight it, um, what the solutions are. And last time, we introduced the concept of the fear of man according to Scripture. We looked at what it actually is. Um, the core concept is not only being afraid of somebody else, which is typically how we think of fear and fearing people, but the, the core of it is actually being controlled or mastered by other people being controlled or mastered by others, worshiping other people, is another way we could put that, the way the Bible describes this. Um, needing other people, trusting in others. And if we want to put it simply, it's the fear of man is when we replace God with people. It's replacing God with people. Instead of fearing the Lord, we fear other people. And so we looked at what it is. We tried to get a definition, a working definition. And then we also looked at about a dozen ways that the fear of man shows up in our lives. Um, And that was a lot of subtleties. Uh, And that was probably the most helpful and convicting part for us last week as we just sort of slowed down and, and, um, and looked at that in depth. But just to hit the high point, some of the indicators of the, the fear of man might include uh, being easily influenced by others. You know, in directions that uh, you think yeah, you probably shouldn't go, but you want their approval, so you give in to their influence. It might look like struggling to say no to things, being overcommitted as a result, because you don't want to let that person down. It might look like fearing exposure when, you're, when your sin is, or fearing exposure uh, of your sin, because you, you, want to, you want to maintain your image. Or being preoccupied with how you're perceived by other people, your, your peers, your family. It might look like struggling to confront people because you don't want them to think badly of you or, or, or whatever it may be. It may look like pretending at church, putting on a face, again, protecting the image. It might look like loving the praise of others. There's so many ways that this, that this fear of man manifests itself in our lives and it's, it's just insidious. And so we looked at that, and that's really important that we kind of get a grasp of, of what this is and, and how it's manifesting. And then finally, we looked at why the fear of man is so dangerous. Um, the scriptures call the fear of man a snare in the Proverbs. It's a trap. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, And this trap means that it's, it's a real threat to us. The fear of man is a threat. It's a danger. And so we ended last week by looking at some very serious dangers that the fear of man poses um, for us. And you can think of last week, if you're comparing it to this week, okay, you can think of last week as sort of the biopsy and the bad test results. Okay, so we we were treated, 
came, or we got the biopsy, it came back uh, poorly. We were tested for the fear of man, and the test came back positive. So now what do we do? Well, that's what we're going to begin to look at this week, and it'll probably bleed into next week. Uh, we're going to call this message the antidote to the fear of man. All right, The antidote to the fear of man. So what is the biblical solution? What's the antidote? I'm not going to make a COVID joke right now. What is the vaccine? I just did. All right, went there. Sorry. That's it. I'm done. No more. Any guesses? What do you think? What is the antidote to the fear of man? Humility? Yeah. Yep. The fear of God. That is correct. And that's tied very tightly with humility. So, the fear of God is the antidote to the fear of man. Ed Welch wrote a book on this topic. And I love the title because it really describes this, what we're going to be covering tonight really well. And it's called, When People Are Big and God is Small. When people are big and God is small. Think about that for a minute. What does that title imply? Well, it implies that we fear man because we inflate the importance and the significance of others, on the one hand, and then we deflate God. So people are big. God is small. The way the Bible says it, or the way the Bible puts it, is Romans says that we exchange the, the creator for the creature, the worship of the creator for the creature. And we insult God by functionally saying that people are more weighty in our hearts than him. They carry more weight, more value than he does. We honor people above the Lord. So in this case, people are big and God is small. But the title also implies uh, the solution. The solution is we need a robust biblical vision of God, right? In all of his glory. And we need to entrust ourselves to this one true and living God and to what his sovereign word says. And just again, by way of introduction, Throughout the Bible, God is constantly reminding us of who He is. He's constantly calling His people to fear and trust Him above the so-called gods of their day, above those little deaf and dumb idols that people fashion for themselves. And God calls His people to trust and fear Him, not in kings or in horses or military might. He calls us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on Him. He calls us not to rely on our own wisdom, our own assessments, but in His revelation. So God's solution, God's antidote, is that we turn from our idolatry, our fear of man, and we return to Him. Exclusively hoping in Him, exclusively trusting in Him, as our minds are renewed in His truth. So in a word, this is what it means to fear Him, to fear the Lord. Um, again, just look, open your Bibles real quick to Matthew 10. I just want you to see this, this playing out. This concept of people being big, God being small, in the reverse. Matthew 10, 28. 
Jesus is in the midst of a, of a teaching session. We're just going to drop right into verse 28. And he tells us, the, the people who are listening, do not fear, this is chapter 10, verse 28 of Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That's, I mean, pretty staggering. Don't, f- don't fear people who are trying to kill you. Um, how, how is that possible, not to do that, not to fear them? Well, he introduces a greater fear. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. That's the antidote to fearing man. So the idea here is these people are putting pressure on you to renounce Christ. These people are coming in and trying to tempt you away from Christ, and they're putting a lot of fearful pressure on you. And you're going to capitulate to that unless your view of God is bigger than your view of man. Unless there's something greater at stake and Jesus weaves in a little reality here about God that exalts him over people, right? Because God kills body and soul. There's something worse than your body dying. It's your soul being destroyed. And God can do both of those. So fear him. And then he goes on with some incredible encouragement in this passage. But I just want to show you uh, that principle. And it's throughout the Bible. The threats of men seem ultimate. People seem big, but there's a far greater threat to heed, and, and that's the Lord's. And when the Lord's exalted in our eyes, we'll fear Him and we'll obey Him above men. So, it's a roundabout way of saying that the antidote to the fear of man is the fear of God. And... Uh, in fact, the Bible presents the fear of God as central to the entire Christian life. One author went so far as to call the fear of God the soul of godliness. The soul of godliness. That just means that it's at the very center of all our growth in the Lord. The fear of God's kind of right smack dab in the middle of our, of our growth process. Ecclesiastes tells us the same, the same thing. It tells us that the fear of God is the whole duty of man. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Proverbs tells us it's the gateway to all wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 9, 10. Psalm 111, 10. And the church is described as walking in the fear of the Lord in the book of Acts. In Acts 9, 31. So tonight, we're going to do our best to unpack this incredibly significant concept of the, of the fear of the Lord. And we're really uh, just going to ask and answer, again, just two questions. Okay? Just two questions we're going to ask and answer. Uh, the first is, what is it? What is the fear of the Lord? Actually, I may add a third. What is it? We'll see how far we get. Okay? Two, maybe three. Maybe a bonus, maybe a bonus point here. I don't know how long, we'll, how long these will take. But what is the fear of God? And then, let me scroll down and find it. Why should I fear God? Be a second question. And then, how do I grow in the fear of God, or how can I cultivate the fear of God? And we'll see if we get to number three. So two, maybe three. You expositors guys, don't, don't follow me in uh, my bad proposition there. You want to you be clear. It's your plural noun, right? <laughs> okay, that, that doesn't make any sense except to like two people in here, so don't worry about it. All right, number one, what is the fear of God? Well, when the Bible talks about the fear of God, it does, it does so from really uh, 
a couple vantage points. That may be the best way to describe this. I went back and forth on how to frame this up today. Um, but I think we can, we can understand it from a couple vantage points. Initially, maybe we can talk about it like this. From the vantage point of an unbeliever, we might call it the faithless fear of God. Faithless fear of God. Now, you might be scratching your head here. What do you mean by that? Well, since the fall, human beings have been totally corrupted by sin and guilt. And so, if you want like a shocking statement on this, real early in the Bible, Genesis 6, 5, uh, all the intentions and thoughts of their heart were only evil continually, is what that text says. And we instinctively know that we're evil, Romans 1 says, and we bear guilt as a result of that. And most of psychology is, giving, is given to, to trying to deal wrongly with human guilt that results from sin. So they misdiagnose it and they, they misappropriate the solutions. But we're just plagued with guilt. It's just, it runs rampant. And so what happens then when a holy God enters the picture? His sinful creatures are terrified. We're like roaches that scatter in the light. And rightly so. But instead of running to God for mercy, they hide just like Adam and Eve hid in Genesis 3.8 when they heard the Lord coming in the cool of the garden. When it once was a, an intimate walk in trust and fellowship, they hide. They would rather call, people like this, would rather call for rocks to fall on them, like the prophets say, than to face the fierce wrath of Christ. Revelation 6, 15 and 16. This is how an unbeliever will respond to the Lord on that final day, with dread and terror at the coming judgment. Now, Again, this is why I'm calling this the uh, faithless fear of God. Um, this obviously isn't the kind of fear of God that we're after. Uh, the kind of fear that, that doesn't repent, but instead curses God after they get caught, and then they, they, they curse God for, for punishment as they're punished. Uh, Revelation 9, that's some of the saddest portions in, in the book of Revelation, are Revelation 9 and 16, when the Lord's just like pouring out the plagues on sinful humanity. And they curse God. They don't repent. Um, but they're the same people that are afraid of him, you know, uh, when the wrath is coming. So I think that's, that's this, this kind of unbelieving fear that we see. And, and so the, where this kind of gets confusing is that what I'm calling it unbelieving fear is because it's not the kind of fear of God that we're after because the Bible actually talks about unbelievers as not fearing God. So that could kind of get confusing. It's like, okay, well, do they or don't they? Well, they don't fear God in this other sense that we're going to talk about. And that's because ever since the fall, we've been suppressing the truth about God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.18. And this kind of truth suppression leads Paul to then conclude in chapter 3 that for the unbeliever, quote, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Chapter 3.18. So no fear of God in the kind, of, the kind of fear of God that we're after. So what is this, this kind of fear of God? So this is sort of like sub-point number two all right, in our, in our answer. It's not the unbelieving kind of fear that everybody has, unbelievers, but it's a special kind of fear. We call it a faith-filled fear of God. A faith-filled fear of God. 
And maybe we could say it's, it's from the vantage point of a believer. From the vantage point of a believer. So I, I want to, to unpack this a bit and then hang with me because I'm going to give you like a crystallized definition of this at the very end. But I think it will work better if I kind of just lay out some data for you here on, on what this thing, what this, what this looks like. So what are some of the ways that, what are some of this, this, the characterizations maybe that we could say of this sort of faith-filled fear of God? Well, number one, it comes from God. Okay, it comes from God. This fear of God comes from God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me, let me spread this out a bit, okay? Hang with me. Remember that we just said, we just heard Paul say that unbelievers have no true fear of God. Well, throughout salvation history, this was also true of the nation of Israel. Even after God pulled them out, delivered them from Exodus, uh, their history was just a history of continuing to fail in the fear of God. I'm going to call it that. There's several points in the, in the Old Testament scriptures where Moses and other people are just sort of like, almost exasperated, saying like, ah, that the, 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 the people would fear you, Lord, like always. Um, and it just implying that, that they don't. They have a massive problem. And this problem is going to persist throughout all of Israel's history. And this, this lack of fear, this lack of, of true fear of God, landed them in exile. But while they were there, and, and this is a massive problem, Okay, because Israel is supposed to be the light for the nations. Like, they're supposed to be the beacon of hope for the Gentile world. And they're failing at this miserably because they don't even fear God themselves. So Israel, as God's servant, is failing. And so they're exiled. And remember, all of the charter of creation sort of hinges on this, right? Uh, for God to bring blessing back to the earth that was, that was forfeited in Genesis 3. And while they were in exile, while Israel was in exile, God promised that he would send a Messiah, a king, who would be characterized by his spirit and would be characterized by the fear of God. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 11. This is going to swell up in confidence for us as the people of God when we kind of map this out. This is why I'm going here. So, there's a Messiah on who, who would represent Israel, the people, and he would be characterized, according to Isaiah 11, by the Spirit of God, which is a spirit of the fear of the Lord. Look in um, chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Wow. We could, we could spend an entire message on that one verse. The, the shoot and the, the root here. It's a sweet. Branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's, a, it's incredible. Um, all right. We're just going to pass over that. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. So the spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You see that? So there's a Messiah figure coming, and he's going to have the spirit, this described here, it's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with, the, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then he goes on to describe this, this millennial kingdom, I think, in the following verses. But the point here that I'm, draw, I'm trying to draw out is that Part of, the, part of the, the role of Messiah is he's going to be characterized by the spirit and the spirit of fear, the fear of God. Now that's important because Israel was not characterized by the fear of God. And this Messiah is going to represent the people. As If we were just to pan out in Isaiah, we would see that. Isaiah 53, he would die for them, be a substitute, and eventually this Messiah would pour out his spirit, this spirit, it's promised to him to all of God's people. And again, we're still in Isaiah. Themes of Isaiah. So what does this mean? Well, it means that God would grant his people to fear him. See the connection? Because they're going to receive the Spirit. So fear would come then through the empowerment of the Spirit. This fear that we're going to, that we're going to define here in a moment. Fear is going to come through this Spirit. And that's exactly what we find in another prophet in Jeremiah 32. So flip over there. Jeremiah 32. And look down in verse 38. Jeremiah 32, 38. We're right in the middle of another context where Jeremiah the prophet is talking about the new covenant that's coming um, for the failure, in, the failure, in light of the failure of the old, the new's coming. And again, in verse 38, he says, They shall be my people. Well, let's back up to verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword. Talking about Jerusalem. By famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Notice verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Whoa. Notice the verbiage. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. You see that? So where does the fear of God come from? God. Right? According to the New Covenant. This is the essence of the New Covenant. That the fear of God is placed in the hearts of of the people. He will give them one heart, he says, so that they might fear him all their days. In other words, a renewed fear of the Lord comes through the new covenant. We pair it with the Isaiah text by the spirit of the new covenant. And that's exactly what we find in the book of Acts, right? Surprise, surprise. Acts 2, Israel is regathered and the spirit is poured out. And at the end of that section, in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, 
Listen to how the church is described. He says, this is sort of a summary statement of everything that's gone, the, the conversion of the Jews and everything that's happened. He says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So, number one, walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, the church was multiplying. This is the new covenant community. And at this point, it's all Jews and Samaritans, which were half Jews. But it's, it's, it's got a fully Jewish flavor. So what is the point of this, I think, without getting too far off, is that through the Messiah, God had raised up the remnant of Israel and turned them into the light that he had intended to turn them into all the way back when he chose them in the beginning. And it's in and through the work of the Messiah, in and through the work of the Spirit. Now the fear of God is in their hearts and they're walking in the fear of the Lord. And now guess what, the church, guess what this new group is now poised to do? Cornelius and the Gentiles. Right? So they are poised to go to the Gentiles and, and see this gospel continue to bear fruit. So my point in all of that is to say, in just right out of the gate, that this, this fear of God comes from God. It comes through our conversion to Christ in, uh, in the New Covenant. Now, that's initially. It comes from God. All right? Next, this fear of God heeds his warning. Okay? Fear of God heeds his warnings. This, this fear of God, this kind of we're after, hears God's gracious warnings about sin and judgment in Scripture, and it, it listens to those warnings. It heeds them. It trembles at the warnings, and it does that by faith. This is a faith-motivated fear. It's still fear, Right? That's, that's a scary thing to hear about the consequences of sin. But it's a faith-motivated fear. A fear that hears God's warnings and seeks to avoid the consequences of sin and punishment. This is throughout the Bible. Okay, so uh, Psalm 119, 120, I can just read that to you. You know it's a long psalm when you get into 120s in the verse numbers. The psalmist says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. It's a godly dude. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Meaning the consequences of, of, of the infractions of God's law. You think about things like the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, when they lie to the Spirit, and... They die. And Luke says, and the whole church feared. Right? And he's explicit. The church feared. And everybody else did too, but the church feared. Like, it, this is believers feared the judgment of the Lord. Romans eleven twenty 20 talks about this as well, that we should fear the Lord who, who didn't spare Israel. He broke Israel off so that the Gentiles might be grafted in. That we shouldn't be proud of that as Gentiles. We should fear. Um, because the only reason we're here is because we've trusted sort of scandalously in Christ without any works. Like we're just like totally here by Him. So we don't need to be proud about that. So he says rather we should fear 
Um, Romans 11, 1 Timothy 5, 20. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to rebuke elders in the church that are, that are not repenting of sin. He tells them to rebuke them publicly in the church so that everybody would fear. So this is a big deal. This is a motivation in Scripture that the fear of God is, is really fear, and it heeds the warnings of, of Scripture. It's a faith-filled heeding of those warnings. All right? Number three, what else is this, this fear of God characterized by? Well, it, it repudiates self. The fear of God repudiates self. It doesn't stop, you know, just merely at this, like, dread of punishment and seeking to avoid it. It goes beyond that to this repudiation. This fear of God drives us to repudiate ourselves, to turn away from our own wisdom, our own assessments. Uh, this is common, but Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you, know, you guys can quote this from memory, I'm sure. But trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Okay, That don't lean on your own understanding is the repudiation of yourself. Like Don't, don't lean on what makes sense to you. Because it doesn't matter. That's your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Okay? So, so don't, be, don't assess yourself as wise and think, I know the way. Because you don't. Instead, He says, fear the Lord. You hear that? Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So that's this idea of... of the fear of God repudiates self. So we, we, there's no room in here for sort of our own, our own assessments of things. It abandons, it abandons self, and it, it abandons um, all of that and entrusts itself to, to the revelation of Scripture, to God's Word, to what He has said. All right, repudiate self. Next, it depends on His promises. The fear of God depends on His promises. So I, and I, love, I love this because the, the fear of God starts and the Lord's bringing the hammer down on sin and warning us about that in Scripture. And it's leading us to turn from ourselves and repudiate ourselves. And then it, he just like that fear just keeps driving us into the very arms of God, into his mercy, into his promises. Um, I'm flipping all over, so I'm... I'm if you guys want all these references, you can email me and I can send you my notes. But Psalm 33, 18 and 19. It's a sweet, sweet picture here. It says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. And notice how they're described. On those who hope in His steadfast love. That He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. And again, this, this language, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. <laughs> We're not our help. He's our help. He's our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. There's no self in that. That's abandonment of self to the Lord. And there's no good works coming saying, hey, God loved me because of these things. It is just abandonment into the, the steadfast love of, of the Lord. Like, it's, we're just hoping in that. Like, that's all we have. So this fear of judgment leads us to the solution, God's solutions. This faith-filled fear of God drives us to His promises. Drives us to humbly depend on His promises and not ourselves. 
And kind of ironically, the next characterization is <laughs> this creates more fear. This creates more fear. Psalm 133, 130, verse 3. This experience of God's mercy and His full and free forgiveness actually, according to this psalm, creates more fear of God. I'll read it to you. Psalm 130, verse 3. The psalmist says, I will, just, I will start in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the pleas I let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Here it is. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should count them up, O Lord, who could stand? Implication? I, I can't. No one can. If you should mark them according to what we deserve. But, verse 4, with you there is forgiveness in order that you may be feared. With you, there is forgiveness, full and free. Why? That you may be feared. So being driven by the fear of God into the dependence on His promises and the experience of His mercy creates more fear. It creates more fear. God forgives us so that we increase in our fear toward Him. And that's where this term of fear gets really neat. Okay? And it begins to extend beyond just being afraid to being in awe of God. To stand in wonder and worship at the holy God who humbles Himself in love to save sinners. If you're only afraid of God because of His judgment, you will not. You have to go to this extent to experiencing His mercy. Like the Bible says, we tremble with joy at the thought of God drawing near to us in love. In this friendship as our tender and gracious Father. That's what the psalmist means when he says that God forgives us so that we will fear Him in true and joyful reverent worship. Another way the Bible describes this in Malachi 3.16 is esteeming His name. This fear is esteeming His name. It's, it's, it's assigning them the weight that is proper and the worship that is this, does, He deserves for his, the depths of His forgiveness of us. And I love, I love the way the Bible combines fear and joy. Has that ever been kind of an interesting combo that you've, that you've come across? Like, what? Uh, Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2.11 is another is an example of this where um, the Lord's reigning. You know, he's like installed this king on Zion and there's all these rebellious kings of the nations. And there's this invitation in the Psalm 2 for the kings of the nations to come and like humble themselves before the Lord and his king. Submit themselves to the, to the true king. And it says, rejoice, um, rejoice with fear. Serve the Lord with trembling. Rejoice with fear. And that's this idea of this, this trembling joy 
Um, Matthew 28, 8, the women at the, uh, at the resurrection at the tomb, after, the, after they've seen the empty tomb and they, they're, they're, the angels talk to them and tell them that Christ has, has risen, it says they, they're like running back and they are afraid with joy. That's what it says there. And that's, that's the idea, is that, that the mercy we experience from God actually creates more fear, more worship. And this, number six, I think, in our list, this results in obedience. This faith-filled fear of God results in obedience. It will always result in obedience. In other words, obedience is the evidence of the fear of God in someone's heart. There's so many examples of this in Scripture. Um, probably the most dramatic, one of the most dramatic, uh, apart from Christ in the garden, is probably Abraham, when he is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. That's the child of promise that the Lord commands him to kill. And Abraham obeys um, almost instantly. And he takes him up on the mountain, and he's about to kill him. The angel stays his hand. You know the story. And the angel says, now that I've seen that you fear God. You know, and then he goes on. And that's Genesis 22:12. He sees that he fears God. Because he's willing to implicitly obey the Lord. I mean, that's like, I don't know what to do with that. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is a man who just takes God at his word. You know, Hebrews, I know what Hebrews says, you know, that it, believe that God raised him from the dead. You know, I guess guess that's like your only resort, you know, at that point. But like, because God's got to be faithful to the promise he made uh, to him earlier about Isaac. So God can't renege on that promise. So he's, he's, he's got it. He's faithful. So I, I get it. But man, that is, a, that is an intense story. But it illustrates the point that fear, this, this kind of fear of the Lord was in Abraham's heart. And Abraham learned this. This was cultivated in him. And it was passed on to, to the generations uh, after him. Um, Jacob, so this is grandson, Jacob, calls Yahweh, the fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac. It's his name. What does that mean? It means at some point, Isaac started fearing the Lord. And it's so much so that his son, it's like, that must be his name. Because he's the fear of Isaac. Like, he's Isaac's God. He worships him. And Isaac was a checkered fellow. I get, I get that. But at some point in Isaac's life, he, he came to this, this faith, this saving faith that made the Lord his fear. And I think we've got to be careful here. And the reason I'm underscoring this point about obedience is because our obedience or disobedience, this shows us how much we really fear the Lord. No matter what we say with our lips, 
And again, the Bible is, is clear on this. Uh, we've got to be careful what we, what we espouse to make sure that we're, we're living in accordance with this, that there's integrity. Isaiah 29, 13 and 14, says this, And the Lord said, Because this people, Israel, because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Meaning it's not. It's not part of them. I.e., they don't really fear me. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. This is not a good kind of wonder. Um, And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And it goes on to talk about the judgment that's coming. But this is a warning to them and to us today, God's people today, that don't draw near with your mouth and think you fear the Lord when your life is not in accordance with that. There's secret sin. We can claim we fear the Lord, but if we're riddled with this rebellion... The reality is we don't fear Him. So obedience is always the result of the proper fear of the Lord. So, let's sum this up and, and, and answer our first question in a little more succinctly. Okay, What is the fear of God? Well, the fear of God, I'd put it like this. <clears throat> the fear of God is the attitude of the heart that takes God seriously. Fear of God is the attitude of the heart that takes God seriously. It's rattled by his warnings. It depends on his promises. And it obeys his commands. And in a word, just the fear of the Lord is an attitude of humble faith. And that's if you want to say it differently. It's the way you could say it. It's an attitude of humble, humble faith. But I think the Bible describes it as fear of God because there is that sort of like the fear. <laughs> you know, there's that there's that pang of fear in, involved in that. Whether that's fear in the warnings or or fear of just sort of this trembling awe of of who the majesty of God that we're that we're worshiping and who has befriended us. So that's number one. Um, what is the fear of God? Number two, uh, why should I fear God? This will go a little bit faster, I hope. <clears throat> why should I fear God? <clears throat> well, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. Um, but I'll just give you a couple. Uh, number one is pretty obvious, but we've got to say it. <clears throat> if you don't fear God, you're going to suffer for it now and eternally as an unbeliever. So it's Proverbs 24, 21, and 22, and a bunch of other texts. But if you don't fear God now, you're going to suffer for it now and eternally as an unbeliever. So it means, like, the Lord's not going to be mocked forever. Um, Again, because if we don't fear the Lord, we're mocking him, right? So you're his creature, and, like, the proper creature-creator relationship is to fear him. So this goes for every unbeliever. Like, it's not going to, it's not just going to, go well for them. The Lord will turn this thing around, and he'll likely do it now, and he will definitely do it eternally if they don't repent. 
So in the end, everyone will fear the Lord. They will. Psalm 102.15 Everyone will bow in submission to the Lord, either in judgment or in salvation. Listen to the words of God from Malachi 1.13. He says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Not might be. If I can move the pieces around, it will be feared among the nations. So, why should you fear God? Because you're going to fear God um, eventually. And we want you to fear Him in that positive sense that we were describing earlier. So, fun, first fundamental reason, that's why. Next, is the fear of God, like we've said, is the entrance point to all of God's wisdom and knowledge. And that's a lot. And it's, and it's freely given through the fear of Him. All of God. So if you, you want wisdom, Proverbs 2, you know, you want these things. It's, this is this fear of God, this humbling of yourself, this saying, I don't have the answers. You do, in and through Christ, in and through your word, in and through your church, and into the people of God. This sort of entrance point, this attitude, that maybe we could call it like this, the, the attitudinal entrance point is the fear of God. And if you're walking in pride, you're not going to have wisdom and knowledge. It's, it's forbidden to you. You've got to humble yourself in in the fear of God. So, that's positive motivation. Next, not only are wisdom and knowledge given to you when you fear the Lord, but all the benefits of an intimate covenant relationship with God are for those who fear Him. So every single benefit, and they are innumerable, of the, the intimate covenant relationship are for those who fear the Lord. Psalm 25.14 says, Friendship with God. Friendship with God is for those who fear the Lord. Psalm 103 says that steadfast love is stored up, be poured out on those who fear the Lord. Compassion for transgression and sin is lavishly poured out. Psalm 103 again, um, on those who fear the Lord. The Lord's going to protect and He's going to provide for everyone who fears Him. Psalm 34. God's going to give life and satisfaction and wealth and honor to everyone who fears the Lord. Now I think in this, what we're talking about here is think now and then ultimately eternally. Like when Christ returns in His kingdom. It's not health, wealth, prosperity. This is, the Proverbs and the Psalms have a long view of the coming kingdom of God in mind here when they make these promises. Life, satisfaction, wealth, and honor are coming to those who fear the Lord. And Proverbs 14, 26 says that there's confidence in this life. Confidence in this life for those who fear the Lord that's just flowing out of this, this covenant relationship with the, with the triune God. And again, that's, that's not based. It's not like the fear of God qualifies you for the relationship. You understand what I'm saying? It doesn't qualify. Christ qualifies you. Remember, he, he feared for you, right? Um, he is our covenant mediator. So we're, we come in by faith in and through him. But that, even that faith that, that gets you into the gospel is the fear of God, right? It, it's, it's a turning away of all of your works and a turning to Christ. And that is the, that is the fear of the Lord that he gave to you um, in and through the new covenant. So all of these are, are these intimate covenant 
benefits are for those who fear the Lord, and you may even say are enhanced at some level as we grow in the Lord. So your intimacy with Christ, your um, your ability to to be useful and fruitful to Him um, is going to is going to increase. Um, next, another reason why we should fear the Lord, which kind of gets into what I just said, but but life now is eternally fruitful and full of purpose for the one who fears the Lord. Life now is eternally fruitful and full of purpose for the one who fears the Lord. And there's lots of examples on this, man, but let's just take a, a couple. I'm just pulling the language directly from, I just I was like in the Old Testament like all day today, so it was pretty nice. But um, for the husband and father, okay, let's stay, let's stay there. His work and his family will flourish spiritually as he fears the Lord and extends that fear to those under his care. Psalm 128. His work and his family are going to flourish spiritually as he fears the Lord and extends that fear to those under his care. God promises that that will happen. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And he goes on to describe what his wife's going to be like, what his kids are going to be like. And this is like a, this is, and it's fruitful imagery, meaning they're going to flourish spiritually. Another promise for the wife and mother, in this case, her husband, children, and her covenant community, in that case it was Israel, but we could apply that to the church, her husband, children, and covenant community will flourish as she fears the Lord. Proverbs 31, especially verse 30. So again, I'll just give you some examples, just skimming right off the top from the Old Testament where I was like, I was in that a lot this afternoon, so I was taking my examples from there, but Life now is eternally fruitful and full of purpose for the one who fears the Lord. That's a great reason to fear Him, right? Not to flounder around in sort of self-gratification and trying to make sense of things, and that really leaves you empty. And um, nothing that, that's, that's lasting. You know, I've used this illustration before, but you're like playing the Monopoly game, and you're, the game's over, and you don't have any money left. You know, it's like, oh, no, Monopoly money's gone. But you could have used that money to actually get real money, you know, and you didn't. So that's the fear of the Lord allows us to be fruitful, um, now and um, produces that. So, last reason here: fear of God crucifies our fear of man. The fear of God crucifies our fear of man. And you know these texts like these, but the Psalms are full of this language. It says, "You know, the Lord is my light, and my salvation. What of whom shall I be afraid?" So. When you know your God, it crucifies your fear of man. I mean, the Psalms, you just look for that theme in the Psalms as you read the Psalms. It is everywhere. Um, David can sleep uh, in the middle of his enemies because he fears the Lord, you know, and because he trusts in his God. And that's uh, it's just incredible. Um, incredible motivations here to, to, to cultivate this. So, uh, last question, and we'll pick up on this later, but I want to give you something here. Um, as believers, how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? As believers, how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? How do we grow in the fear of God? Well, there's really, there's really, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things we could say on this, and, and that's probably where I'm going to go next week, is the more practicality side of this. But um, one thing I saw today that struck me was just simple prayer. Simple prayer. Um, 
Listen to this. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86.11. Psalmist asks for this. Unite my heart, meaning I feel the divisions in my heart. I feel my allegiance is shifting. Please, God, unite it to fear your name. It's a great prayer. Proverbs 2, is, you should just read that later. You could write that down, but it's, it's the, all of these promises that are attached to the pursuit of wisdom. And if you call out for it, if you ask God for it, um, He's just going to lavishly bless you with wisdom that then leads to the fear of the Lord. Um, jumping around, so I'm having a hard time keeping all these texts in my mind. Uh, Five. Yeah. It says in uh, Proverbs 2, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, here it is, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. If you seek for it, if you ask for it, if you, if you beg God, Right? Where does this come from? Where does increase the fear of God come from? It comes from God. We've got to ask Him for it. We've got to humbly ask Him so we don't grow in pride. Um, but it promises here that there's this lavish, to give it to us lavishly when we do. So prayer is key. A lot more we can say about that. Um, simply asking the Lord. And then the Scriptures. The Scriptures. The fear of God comes as we believe the revelation of God. And it's really that simple. Um, it's not rocket science. Deuteronomy is full of this theme. Just, I mean, full of it. Tons of, tons of texts on, on this idea. Um, just give you a few. Deuteronomy 4.10. He says, gather the, the people to me. This is, he's recounting the, the moment at Sinai. He says, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. Hear my words, that they may fear me. Um, Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 19. talking about what the king should do when he comes into power. This is one of my favorite Old Testament texts, by the way. I'll tell you about that later. But when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, what should he do? Well, he just finished telling him everything he shouldn't do, which is exactly how all the other ancient Near Eastern kings would have acquired power, like political alliances, acquiring a standing army, uh, lots of gold, amassing gold. He's like, yeah, don't do any of that. Uh, okay, so what should I do? When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it, all the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God, 
by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so he may continue along in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So, for the people, for the king, we could multiply examples through Deuteronomy. But, let's just make a real quick application to us. Daily reading of scripture, right? Sitting underneath the preaching, regular preaching in God's church. Times that God is coming to you through the revelation of his word. Um, in, his, in the gatherings, in your, in your times, you all have personal copies. As simple as this is, he's saying reading the Bible in faith. It's not the mere act of reading the Bible, right? Unbelievers can read the Bible. But reading the Bible and believing what's here and saying, wow, that's true. If this is true, what are the implications for me, my church, my life, right? So it's reading the Bible by faith that will produce the fear of God in your life. So how does it do that? Well, we come to see what God's like as he reveals himself to us in his word. Come to know him, right? We hear his warnings, which often run contrary to everything we're being told. In our work, in our church, in our, not, not our church, not our church, in our work, in our other places that we go. Um, yeah, that'd be a real problem. I would say leave, leave here if that's happening. Um, but it's, it's running contrary to all these things. So what our hearts manufacture the warnings of Scripture just cut against the grain of all of that. Think of pornography, right? It cuts against the grain of that. The warnings of Scripture say it's, it looks good and it will kill you. It will send you to hell if you don't repent. Do you believe it? That's what the Bible says. Don't mock it. Hearing His warnings by faith. That's what happens when we read the Scriptures. When we, hear, we hear His promises when we read the Scriptures, which, again, often run contrary to everything we're being told, everything we feel, everything our hearts are manufacturing. God justifies the ungodly by faith. Like, by faith, that's it. Like, you contribute zero to the full love of God in your life. It's like, what? Like, that, that runs contrary to everything you think and feel. Because there's some measure, like, I just need to, I need to be sorrowful enough for my sin. I need to, to, to do these things to kind of get back into God's That's not the way it works. You need the promises of Scripture in your mind and in, uh, at your eyes being, in, you know, imbibed by faith on a daily basis. So, we hear His promises. We learn of His mighty deeds the things that God does, the things that He has done, uh, creation, the exodus, the conquest of uh, Canaan, um, so many things, the return from exile, Christ's works. Uh, there's so many examples of like, when you see these things, the result in the Bible is like fear in this good sense that we're talking about. And I, if you want examples of those, I've got, I've got texts. But just one easy one is when Christ calms the sea. Right? They're terrified that they're going to die in the water. And then Jesus wakes up, says a word like God in the Old Testament, which the Psalms say this is what Yahweh does. He calms the sea, and then they're terrified of him. 
Like, it's not even about the waves anymore. It's like, who is this who calms the wind in the sea? So the mighty deeds evoke fear um, in God's people because no one else can do these things. Creation is one of the, the big ones that just it, it radiates like really throughout all of Scripture um, is the, the creation of God and the new creation. Um, this evokes fear and worship. We see that in the Bible. Nowhere else. We watch his interactions with humans. We watch God's interactions with humans. His responses to human beings in the Scriptures. And we learn what offends and pleases him. And again, that cuts against the grain of, of your, your own wisdom. And if we could just summarize all this, it, when we read the Bible, we perceive the greatness of God. We behold His glory in the Scriptures. And one theologian said it like this. He said, it, it, it's the apprehension of God's glory that constrains the fear of His name. It's the apprehension of God's glory that constrains the fear of His name. And the, the greatest deed, if you want to call it that, the greatest act in the Bible is the cross. Where all of God's glory, all of his attributes are put on display in, in the crucifixion of his son, in the resurrection of his son. And so we'll, we'll just end there. I mean, there's a way that the, that the church comes into play here uh, in helping you increase the fear of God. We'll probably talk about that at a later point, so I won't, I won't get into that now. But I just want you to see out of this lesson that the fundamental antidote to everything we talked about last week, and I know we didn't get into that much this week, so if you're new, you can go back and listen to that. But the antidote to that fear of man is fearing God more. Um, and there are a lot of more practical things that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, like how to, how to fear God more, truths that we need to believe, those kinds of things, um, to battle the fear of man specifically. But this is the main takeaway from tonight, is that fear, as the fear of God increases, your fear of man will decrease. Um, because you come to see him as he is. Make sense? And then you become a lot more happy and a lot more useful. Um, and it's a sweet, sweet exchange. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. We pray that it does bear fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.